Hello, trauma thrivers, and hello to Dr. Tian Dayton. Thank you so much for joining us. We're really privileged to see you. And uh, thank you for joining us today for this interview. For those of you that don't know about Tian, just to say she is a senior fellow at the Meadows Treatment Center in Arizona. She's also the director of the New York Psychodrama Training Institute. She's an acclaimed author of many books, and her latest one is The Soulful Journey of Recovery, which I am three quarters of the way through, um, and I'm loving. She also has a master's in educational psychology, a PhD in clinical psychology, and is a board certified trainer in psychodrama and a creative arts therapist. She is a nationally renowned speaker, and a consultant in psychodrama, an expert in trauma, and her niche really that I'm fascinated about is in adult children of addiction and relational trauma. So really we are, I'm hugely grateful and very thankful to Dr. Dayton to, for joining us today. And I wondered where to start. Tion, because there's such a wealth of information and knowledge and trying to get that into a, an interview of hopefully 40, 45 minutes, we're really going to have to drill down quite fast. But I, I wondered if you'd mind with starting perhaps with your own journey and your own personal journey into this area and this field and how you got into it. Well, I... Um... I always sort of think I backed you into it like a Parker House role, you know, that that uh, I fell into the addiction. I don't think people think I'm going to go into the addictions field. I'm going to go into the adoption of alcoholics field. I think we go in because we have a, a need to be there for personal reasons. And my father was an alcoholic. He's He's no longer living. And it changed everything in my life. He was somebody I adored and had a a lovely close relationship with and then he was a binge drinker so periodically I would watch him turn into a monster somebody who was abusive somebody who um, all all bets were off and then our family would sort of swirl into that he went in as he went into drunken drunkenness we went into a kind of an emotional drunkenness and then he would sober up and then we kind of shook it off and sobered up. And uh, in those days, this, I'm talking about the 50s and the 60s, we really thought if you got the alcoholic sober, the family would get better on its own. And we did not. We never got dad sober, but he died uh, a long time ago, uh, 40 some years ago. Uh, and we didn't, get so we didn't get sober by ourselves. It's taken a lifetime of work to come through the effects of what I now understand to be relational trauma. That's how I got here. Okay, amazing. And, and how did you begin the journey or when did you begin the journey? When did you kind of realize about all the emotional effects? I can tell you exactly the moment. It wow. was, it was uh, my, let me just think. I really think this was, I had two ahas. 
Um, one was that my husband and I were in the middle of a fight. We, we married, you know, we got together when, at 23 and 24. We married at 25 and 26. We had a, our daughter at when I was 27. You know, so we, we, um, we were both ACOAs. Okay. Very equivalent. He adored his mother. She died of, you know, all that kind of thing. So, I mean, she didn't really die of addiction. She just died. The, the usual story. This is the usual story. She just died a lot earlier and the quality of life was a lot worse. And we lost her by inches, just as we lost my father. Yeah. Uh, but the aha was when we were having a fight and I realized we are not yelling at each other. We're yelling at ghosts from the past because this yelling doesn't even, it, 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 there were sentences that weren't even about each other. I mean, I remember hearing them and thinking, I don't, I don't think that happened here between us. And I, I said, wait a minute, we're, this is bizarre. We're not even uh, talking to each other. So that was one aha. Uh -huh. And then I think within that time span, I mean, I'm talking in my, you know, 27 years old, 28, we were staying with his mother who, we were living in the country in Pennsylvania at the time. And she was in New York City. And my husband was working. I was taking care of our then baby daughter. Uh, and they, it was so weird because his mother was drinking at the time. And it just got stranger and stranger. My husband went out the door, came back in the, you know, later. But I was there all day and I, I was doing everything I could, taking walks, going, doing everything. But I had a little girl and she had a nap time. And so I left early. I thought I'm, I really thought I was in, a, I was, it was very crazy. Yeah. So I said, I'm leaving early. I, I took a bus to, I mean, I, 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 for, I didn't go on the ride, the comfortable ride that would have been three days later, I took a bus to where we were in the country, uh, drove my little car through what turned out to be kind of a snowstorm that I didn't anticipate, went home and thought, what was happening? And I found on my shelf a book called I'll Quit Tomorrow by Vern Johnson. They had a friend, uh, Wheelock Whitney, who helped to start the Johnson Institute and Hazelden and so on, had just given me. I, I read it twice in about 48 hours while taking care of a little girl on my own. So that was nap time. That was, you know, after she fell asleep at night. I was so in need of this information. And after I read it, I thought, I am also sick we are also sick from this addiction. We also need 12 steps, but at the time, I, I, and I'm also, I understood I was on the first step. My, you know, my life had become unmanageable. Yeah. My, my, not my life, because my life actually was doing fine, but there was something in my inner world had become out of, too chaotic, uh, too, too uh, shut down, too in pain, too reactive, too all that stuff. Uh, so I knew I needed help. I just didn't, there was no word like adult children of alcoholics. We still thought I was supposed to be fine wow. if the alcoholic was no longer there. Wow. But I knew something was wrong. And I eventually convinced my husband <laughs> something was wrong. 
And then we started to be open to getting help. And how did you start getting help? What did you do? Because in, in those days was, you know, were there, there weren't any 12 step meetings like there are now for adult children of alcoholics that was CODA about? No CODA, no ACOA, Al-Anon. And Al-Anon we thought of as for spouses at that time. Yeah. So I started working the steps on my own. I just, start, I thought this is a place I can start. And I, I started working the steps. The one other thing I did, I, I did talk to a friend who was in recovery as an addict. And she said, um, these are really personal stories, but she said, are, are you being honest about your own drinking, Tian? And I thought, this is how odd I was in my head. Maybe I'm not being. I, I did have at least a glass of champagne on New Year's Eve. And this was like in April. I mean, this was, I, I never drank. Yeah. I never have drank. I, I'm allergic to it. Um, but I thought, I want to look and uh, uncover every stone. So I went to an AA meeting. And, the, you know, I sat while everybody shared. And they went around the table and they shared. And then I shared. And they just all looked at me like, and somebody put their arm around me at the end of the meeting and said, I think you're, I think you're in the wrong meeting. Oh, Thursday nights, there's Al-Anon. Right. So try that. Um, right. You don't have a drinking problem. So I, I um, but I knew I had much more of a problem than other people knew. And as I, I want to say, I was a, very highly functioning person. This yeah. was not anything that was in the way of my ability to work, to marry, to be a mother. It was something that was in the way of my ability to feel all the beauty that I already had. Yeah. So you started at Al-Anon and then what happened? How did you move into psychology? How did you start training? Well, I, that's, that's the other point. I went, there was finally in 1980, a conference on adult children of alcoholics. So my mother was aware of this and told me about it. And we went with my mother and uh, my husband and I, and it just turned every light bulb on. Yeah. Then, we, then I got our family into therapy with a woman called Sharon Wegscheider, uh, Cruz, who had written Another Choice, who, had, who was quite well known in the field at that time. We all gathered in our basement, spent two days together, doing what she then called a family reunion. I, I, I'm dragging everybody in. And um, I left at some level. I said, and not physically, I've always stayed connected to my family, but in some way I set myself free. Yeah. And we moved to London and had a really good time for a couple of years. And then we moved back to America and then I started then I went, when I moved back to America, we had, we, were in New, we went to Connecticut, we left Connecticut, we came to New York City, and I looked out at the park one time and I thought, you know, I have everything I want. I'm married to the man I want to be married to, I have two beautiful kids, I have a great life, but I can't feel it. Something's not connecting in here, I'm not who I should be, I'm not as much as I should be. So I found this five-day program that Sharon was doing, went to it discovered psychodrama and changed my life. 
changed my master's that I was getting in educational psychology with a more psychology focus, got the PhD, got psychodrama training. How long did that journey out of interest take? Because, I mean, that's not not a small feat, is it, to do all of that and a PhD? I did the slowest track you can possibly do. Uh, So I suppose it all took 10 years because I was a mother and I wanted to be with my children. And uh, I did it slowly. Yeah. And at first I got a master's so I could work with the masters. And that took... I, I spent four years getting that, maybe maybe a little longer. Okay. And then the PhD was another four, I think. Yeah. And then you started running events in New York. Were you working with adult children mainly? How did it move on from that? I started working with, uh, I've worked with very many treatment centers over the years, but I started working with Karen, what is called Karen Foundation, Karen yeah. Treatment Center now. And, uh, you know, I just worked with on-site uh, a lot with those two places yeah. in those days. And working with really addicts who were sober and family uh, of addicts. Because remember, Sharon's big thing was, what about the family? And I was that family. She was saying, what about the family? So that's where I really landed uh, and, you know, addicts who are sober are often ACOAs or, you know, people who've had relational trauma anyway. So it, there's no shortage of people no, to work. No. And in fact, I wonder if, you know, the more and more you're in the addiction world and the more and more, I mean, I was at the Priory for a decade um, and on the addiction treatment program for about seven years and then slowly started seeing actually that trauma and relational trauma sits under most things. That's what I find also. Yeah, yeah. But then you came up with the relational trauma model. You've come up with your own model. Is that right? That you yes, well, that you will, yet? having a priory, you will understand this easily. Um, the, the thing I kept, I was doing a lot of speaking and writing at the time. So I would go and I, I was determined to make psychodrama popular in the addictions field. We were then doing experiential therapy, but I found a lot of problems in doing experiential therapy. It was very agenda oriented, results oriented. And there was a lot of, there were a lot of props, a lot of pushing, a lot of things that once I bumped into psychodrama, fell into psychodrama, a pamphlet came to my house. My husband said, look into this. Yeah. I never heard of it because we called it experiential therapy. Okay. So I went to a conference and thought, wow, they have figured this out so much better than we have. But, but I had already been doing it for a few years. So I really took to it like a duck to water and um, learned fast. Um, and when you say experiential therapies, for the lay people that are listening, because not everybody listening is a clinician, could you explain to them a little bit about what you mean? It is a derivative of psychodrama. It's okay. using role play, but it, it's not with full knowledge of the theoretical principles behind it. So I went full out into psychodrama training to learn the theoretical principles. Okay. And then when on the cir- as I was already on the circuit, was continually presenting more. But what I kept finding out was people loved psychodrama, the clinicians. Everybody loves psychodrama, the clinicians, the lay people. It's so uh, dynamic and so healing. 
but clinicians said, I'm not trained enough to use that tomorrow. Yeah. And I finally heard it about 10 years after that. And I started to develop something I called sociometrics that I put into that model. But right. sociometrics are psychoeducational, which I think you'll recognize from working in the field. Uh, I, because we're psychoeducational in our field, and I love yes. that. I love that we give people information. It's so respectful. Yeah. But I want it to be healing at the same time. And sometimes you can get a bit flooded with information. So I've created a psychoeducational experiential model that teaches and heals simultaneously. And there are processes that are informed by the theory base of psychodrama and sociometry, uh, which J.L. Moreno created. But they are my own hybridized uh, brand because they work better in our field. Okay, amazing. Could you explain to people that aren't aware what psychodrama is and why it's your preferred treatment modality or method? It's a role-playing method developed at the turn of the century in Vienna by a man called J.L. Moreno. Uh, and then he then came to America in, uh, I, I'm not sure of the exact date, 32 or something and started something called Beacon Hospital to which his future wife brought a sister for help. And once Zerka entered the picture, they later married, she became a co-creator okay. uh, from that point on. It's a role-playing method that uses the full engagement, right? Trauma, when you were terrified, our thinking mind shuts down. Our limbic world revs up, fight, flight. So that means that the limbic system processes emotion, bonding, uh, all the sensory input. So if our limbic system is revved up because we're scared, we are feeling intensely, we're pulling in sensory data, the sights, the sounds, the, the smells, and so on. And we're, we're, because it is in charge of bonding, we're recording that, spirit, that experience in a relational way. So it sits inside us, a body memory with all the sensory uh, memory attached to it, but no storyline because our thinking mind is shut down. We're scared stiff, we're struck dumb, right? So when somebody like a therapist says, can you tell me about your trauma? The client sits speechless all over again thinking, how do I do that exactly? I can't remember half of it. Um, the other half I remember is, as feeling flashes, body sensations, trigger. When I get triggered, I go boyoyoyoing and I get way too mad, way too sad, way too angry, way too fast. So the task of therapy then becomes to create a safe enough environment so that thinking might come back on board while the limbic world surfaces. Now talk therapy can, really good talk therapy can do that sometimes, for sure. Psychodrama does it, really good psychodrama does it pretty easily. Yeah. Um, because we aren't asking anybody to talk about, we're saying if your mother were sitting in that chair, what would you say to her? And suddenly you go, oh, it comes out because you're not asked to uh, do a second or third step of reflection that you can't do anyway. Yeah. 
So it's almost like bringing somebody out of that struck, dumb, scared, stiff, kind of frozen model by giving them back a voice. Exactly. Yeah. Yes. Okay. Makes makes a lot of sense to me. Makes a lot yes, of sense. Yes, and it's often they're struck dumb all over again. Yeah. When asked to talk to somebody. But if you really are warmed up, and that's where the sociometrics come in, there's a lot of understanding and warm-up, and the sociometrics wind up being these little case studies popping up all over the room so that you don't have to teach in a, in a boring didactic way the elements of trauma and how it affected people. People are sharing about how it affected them, and you're identifying, you're warming up to your own story, you're sharing a bit, you're hearing a bit, and then pretty soon your own story is here, and then I can just say, who would you like to talk to? And it's an easy flow. If you go on tiandayton.com and look at, I think it's the trauma timeline or feeling floor check, or if you even look at something called shame, you will see that happening. Okay. It's yeah, very... You've got, you've got loads of brilliant resources on your website. I, ha- I had a look and was blown away by some of them and some of the tools you know, you've even oh, got emotion explorer. Yeah, yeah. I just thought, wow, that's amazing. Well, you know why I did that? I'll just digress. Is I felt when sex addiction became a thing that started to flood the field, I I looked around my group, which it's dark. It was a group I was doing it in the evening, not really dark, but sort of dark. And I thought people get in trouble in the, alone in the dark, lonely, you know, as my as people were sharing. Maybe I could create something people could do with their feelings other than get in trouble yeah. online. So I created Emotion Explorer. And I think it's, you know, I think it's interesting to use if anybody. Yeah, it's I think great. it's great. I think it's great. And I think it could be really helpful for some of the people in my Facebook group, Trauma Thrivers That Are Struggling. So I definitely think we need to signpost them there. So in terms of of your training and understanding and models, who do you think's been your biggest hero, if you like? Who have you followed? Who's inspired you? Bessel van der Kolk. Yeah. Who has led the charge on trauma. He He is a bright beautiful man who sees both trauma and healing everywhere and sees the the thing that's so beautiful about his approach is it's it's clinically so sound and intelligent i mean it hits the mark over and over again but he also goes to other cultures and recognizes how people are healing through dance through self-expression how people are healing through a quiet movement and a chant how people are healing um through through family connection. He's not just isolated his views to a, to an office somewhere, you know, and that's what we need to do with trauma. We need to see, you know, the other, well, I'll go back to the heroes, but the other day I was giving this big talk and at the end of eight hours of psychodrama and there were like 150 people, somebody said, how do you um, tell people you're working with trauma? And I thought, Oh gosh, I I'm, you know, if you have to tell somebody you're working with trauma, I think you're not necessarily working. You're working with trauma all the time. Yeah. And you're healing every time you reconnect, every time you don't isolate, every time you see somebody at treatment center walking together with someone talking, every time they're at a table and you see that 
that camaraderie happening. There's, you have to understand what happens to the brain body in trauma in order to work with trauma. Yeah. You, you don't have to understand a few disembodied facts. So also other heroes, um, Dan Siegel has done just beautiful work on interpersonal neurobiology. I agree. Um, I think if, if I were to say, oh, you know, uh, Stanley Greenspan. Okay, I haven't heard of him. He did beautiful work on, on creating a healthy, uh, emotionally sound children. Alan Shore, of course. Yeah. yeah. So much work. Yeah. Uh, the, I think those, those are the people I have primarily drawn okay. from, and many more, of course. But Yeah. And where do you Maria see... Montessori, Maria Montessori. Oh, Jail yeah. Moreno. What, <laughs> you know. what, what wasn't something about your history to do? Didn't I read something about Montessori in your history? I'm a Montessori teacher. That's yeah. right. Yeah. That's and my, right. That was even before I got, you know, earlier. Wow. Uh, I just loved the whole thing. And so I wanted to learn about it. And yeah. I just certified because I was learning about it. And then I started a little school for my daughter because I didn't, we were in the country and I didn't like the schools as well as, um, so the Montessori method, it yeah. really, we're, we're always working with people on the inside with their development, with their inner child. So a good understanding and grounding in child development it's really helped me as a therapist and as a mother, I needed to be taught how to mother thoughtfully. Yeah. Yeah. And where do you think that the trauma field is going or where would you like it to go over the next decade? I think it is going more towards psychodrama. Yeah. Um, because it, it uh, and Bessel has been a, a great endorser of that because it, it, the, the neurobiology has made the connection between the mind and body. Yeah. And if therapy is from here up, we're missing everything that happened to that that process through the whole self system, the whole body. Yeah. Because you carry trauma in here, you carry it in here, you carry it in your feet, in your toes, in your belly, and so we need a method that allows the body to come into therapy. Peter Levine has such a method also. The reason I like psychodrama is uh, it lets the natural body. You can talk, you can move, you can laugh, you can cry. Yeah. It's, if you're doing it well, the client should feel it's their stage. If you're doing it poorly, the client will feel it's the therapist stage and they've got to figure out how to get it right. Yeah. If, a, if you're doing good psychodrama, the client should, f you're almost transparent. Yeah. Yes. It's moving ourselves out of the way, isn't it? Enough so that the client is the center person and it's the same in the yeah. therapy room, really. Yes, I did a film, a filming of this a couple of days ago. When it's cut, I will send it to you if you like to share. I'd because love it's to. a good example of what we're talking about. Yeah, I'd love to, I'd love to. Also, I noticed that you're running a five-day program Oh, interestingly yes. called yes. thrive and i thought oh there's another synergy between trauma thrivers and your thrive program and i thought oh, i must ask you more about that and how people can join or how often you do it or what it's I, about really 
It's at the Meadows. I do, I have designed a couple of programs there. One Thrive and one called Mending Heart Wounds. And um, they are both, they're fully psychodrama, both of them. They're at, they're at a place called Rio Retreat, the Meadows. The, they're called Thrive, they're called Heart Wounds. It's five days of immersion. Okay. In a process that uses sociometrics and psycho, psychodrama in a very uh, pretty setting in Arizona, a very supportive setting in Arizona. So I, I love it because those are the programs that healed my life. Yeah. I didn't need to go to 30-day treatment for an addiction, but I did need to immerse myself in these healing programs. They've changed my life over time. And I did them whenever I needed another, you know, I did them several times. Yes, sure. So I loved them. Yeah, yeah. And can people join in this year? Are you running them this year there? At oh, the yes. Place? All you do is log on to the Meadows Real Retreat. Okay. Or something, you know, and they'll pop up. And there are, I think there are six... I think there's a Thrive in March, and then maybe a Mending Heart Wounds in March, too. There are several of them throughout the year. And why Thrive for you as well? Because obviously that's a word that's synonymous for me coming out of addiction and codependency and adult child issues, et cetera, et cetera. You know, my story is uh, similar in parts to yours where I found that the hardest thing I think for trauma survivors is to find their voices or be visible or to stand up and be able to kind of step into their power. Does you just make- described psychodrama. You described thrive. You describe. you just described it perfectly. Okay. okay. That's why you do it. Psycho. That's why I love psychodrama. Yeah. You do all that stuff automatically. Okay. And you'll see it on the tape. You'll, I mean, you'll, you stand up, you tell your own story. Somebody's not telling you what your story is and you're going, oh, maybe it isn't. You know, it's your no, story. Your I should have found you 20 years ago. <laughs> <laughs> ah, yeah, that would have been really helpful. So it's I so think for me, I, I've gone more the EMDR route and training at the moment. So, well, I think that's pretty effective. I mean, people seem to get, you know, good psychodrama. It has a, trauma, a, a, a trance state, a psychodramatic trance state. Yeah. And I'm very respect, I, there's, there's psychodrama and then there's trauma-informed psychodrama. Yeah. And I feel you're not seeing trauma-informed psychodrama truly if you're not seeing an engagement of that trance state. Okay. When that trance state is engaged, the neural repatterning just goes very quickly, as you must understand from EMDR, right? And then you add to that this ability to reverse roles because we internalize this dyadic rapport, this dyadic bond, this dyadic relationship. And when we we try to talk about it as if it's only one side of us, no. The reason we play it out and reenact it is we've got both living inside us the Tian and Tian's mom, Tian and, and dad. You know, in this, you know, so then it gets lived out where it gets lived out when it becomes Tian and Tian's child, just in role reversal, right? We just play the other role. So we need something that allows for the dyadic relationship to emerge, and psychodrama does. Yeah. Um, I think that's the, I am very aware of that in doing psychodrama, and you, you really have to, 
protect it because people miss it. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, we get well, as we say, in relationships. It's all about, isn't it, the social engagement system. So that's why I really get psychodrama. And I know in EMDR and even you know, in the relationship with the therapist, we yeah. that social engagement, but there is probably a lot of power when people represent those gestalts or the parents or, or symbolize something from way back when that maybe EMDR can't touch. Can't touch? Well, you know, we work much more with the belief. It's still the somatic and the discharge of the body. And I don't know how much discharge you, you see in psychodrama, um, but it's, it's less the relationship with the mother or father. There's could not... You add, could you add psychodrama to EMDR when you're oh, in I, I, You know, I wonder. I mean, there is a, a colleague in the UK whose training that I've done, which is interesting, is on transgenerational trauma with EMDR, where actually you experience yourself as your parent. So you're doing EMDR, and I've done it on me, where I was my mother. Well, that is very psychodramatic because, yeah. you know, you are using it, you are playing out the, the, the internalized object, the internalized mother, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's cool. Yeah, yeah. It, was, it was quite, quite interesting. It was quite mm -hmm. interesting. So when do people get to see you? Because I know that you're coming to the UK very soon. May? I yeah. think I'm coming that first week of May to the UK yes. for the ICAD conference. Okay, so for the people that don't know about ICAD, it's probably the best conference in the UK, I would say. And it's I love it. Yeah, I love it too. I love it. It's a great conference. So mm -hmm. it's on ICAD.com. And what date are you there this year? Do you know? I'm, the I'm not Tuesday. sure. Uh, I think... I think I, I'm not sure, maybe Wednesday. Okay, yeah, I know that the conference is on Monday the 4th to Wednesday the 6th of May. I think so I might be on Tuesday. I yeah, might be I on think Tuesday. you're there on the 5th. I think I'm on I Tuesday. remember thinking that's the, definitely the day that I'm going to be. And going. then I can enjoy the Wednesday and just go to other people's presentations. Yeah, totally. And I like what are you presenting that. on at ICAD this year? I th I'm doing frozen moments. So what sort of what you and I were talking, well, exactly what you and I were talking about. Okay. Just a way to work with those moments. I, what I found is that people do freeze oftentimes when they do this work. So I, I, I found that by starting out with a frozen moment and in in saying, what, what's a moment when you, you know, when you froze, right? Uh, I like to do it first with a social atom, and I'll probably do that at the conference. I think in, I think I've got that on paper in, in my book that you were talking about, a frozen moment of a social atom. I hope I do, but it's if you do one on paper, it's actually remarkably uh, effective. And share it with somebody. Okay, it, it's a social atom. It, but then I put it up into a sculpture and a psychodrama so, so that you kind of go live 
Okay. So, so, so could you explain that a little bit more for lay people that might be listening, just so that they could get their head around it, the social atom? The social thing? atom. And the, sure. A social atom is, uh, imagine you're in a group, or as I say, if you, uh, in the, in the uh, soulful journey, I'm putting exercises after every chapter so that the, I like psychoeducation. I like it to be healing and educational. And I think it's hard if you just do too much education, if you can't make it personal. So yeah. somewhere in there, I think I've done a social atom or, or a trauma timeline. I put those in the book. Uh, you use circles to represent females, triangles, males, squares, if you want to put an institution, pets, aunts, uncles, grandparents, nannies, everybody on a social atom. Yeah. So place yourself anywhere that's on the right for you on that piece of paper and then place a significant relationships at that time, at that moment, near you. And let the placement reflect their closeness or distance, size in relative to you, and then as you do that and you look at it, if many awarenesses float into consciousness, it's a more powerful activity than it sounds like. Yeah. Sharing it, doing it in a group, doing it with a therapist, doing it uh, with a, a trusted person, uh, with a coach <laughs> is nice. And then in the uh, workshop, I will then put that on stage and somebody will, will make a sculpture of that, will do it as a psychodrama. Okay. And there's something called the double that's just magical in psychodrama. It's a brilliant uh, technique that Marino came up with. You stand behind the protagonist, right? And you articulate what they're not able to say from their own role. Because we do walk through life with a whole bunch of stuff back here that doesn't come out from here. So the double speaks the inner life or that which is not being spoken and then checks it out. Now, does, does that feel right? Don't worry if it's wrong. But oftentimes it, it'll be a kind of a connection made between that limbic world and the cognitive world. You'll think, whoa, that, you know, because you feel when these memories surface, like you're, you're swimming, you're moonwalking. It's a strange experience and you feel wordless because you were at the time wordless. Yeah. So sometimes the double can help to bring things into consciousness, but the protagonist always has the choice of saying, nah, that doesn't fit, or yes, it, or correct it, it really was more like this. Um, in that double, in that frozen moment, and you can also double for yourself, right? So I oftentimes we use a stand-in, who could play you, and stand behind the person playing you and say what you couldn't say then. Because sometimes people still can't say it yeah. when the sculpture is up. But if they stand behind themselves, it all comes out. Yeah, that sounds amazing. So are you doing the whole day there on the Tuesday or just a, a morning or It's a 90 minute session. I okay, think. cool. Yeah. Okay, cool. Amazing. I, I will be there. Oh, good. Yeah, definitely. So I get to see you in person. Wonderful. So you now, what's the next future steps for you? What would you like to create next? Because I know the last book has the soulful journey of recovery. Who's you that know, aimed at, really? Who's that for? What, that's for um, 
if you know somebody who's dealing with relational trauma, read this book, do some exercises, see, see where you come on it, get to know what happened to you. I, I've, I've researched every book I've done so thoroughly. I just took the best out of every book yeah. and synthesized it and tried to make it into a journey that you, you don't have to um, make up as you figure out as you go along. It, what took me 20 years to figure out, I can really shortcut in this book. So if you want to understand what happened to you and how to heal it and how to not just survive but thrive, yeah. how to how to um, heal and kind of return to life where you're, of course, more things happen to you, but you have some tools to work them through. So they don't have to stick inside of you in this wordless stuck place that become big blocks and you deny because they're, they hurt and you avoid. The idea is to develop an emotional language so that when things happen to you, you can process them. Yeah. And then move on, you know, that day, that afternoon, not that decade. Yeah. Um, so that's, that's that book. And I want to do more on sociometrics. I need to put those together in a book. Uh, I want to do something for kids. I want, I want to play with my grandchildren. Oh, wow. Okay. So you have my husband. Yeah. And, and it takes a while to write all those books. I mean, you've been prolific, really. I so you found the time somehow. Some are tiny books. Okay. So I've been sort of prolific. You know, I mean, it sounds like more than it is. Yeah. Uh, but I like writing. I wake yeah. up at five. I'm an early riser. So oh, brilliant. It makes uh, those. That's a great time. You know, when my kids were in school, that's how I did it. I just got up at five. And by the time everybody was waking up, I had a couple of hours in, and by 10, I had many hours in, you know. Yeah, but so I could that was your writing that, schedule. Take breakfast, you know, all of that. Yeah, amazing. Oh, yeah, that's yeah. a path to follow. And just lastly, there's a couple of things that I wanted to ask you lastly. Why, why do you think it takes us a while to go towards our relational trauma? Why, you know, a lot of times I'm seeing people that do leave it till their 30s or 40s or 50s to kind of go towards doing the healing work. And then the last thing really is about your thought in time on the journey. Because so many times I think we get people that say, you know, I've been on this path for a while. You know, it's not an instant five days and you're done or even, you know, five months and you're done. Sometimes it can feel a little bit continuous, the relational trauma journey or going from, you know, uh, sufferer to survivor to thriver is a process that takes, that takes some people considerable time. I so I'm going to answer them in order. And if I don't answer them fully, let me know, because they're such good and important questions. The first one, I think, was why, um, why does it show up later? Why does, it, why does it take time to address? Yeah. That's because, I think, for you know, best wisdom today, because it's a form of PTSD. It's a, a, it's a post-traumatic stress reaction. <laughs> Sorry, guys. That's Alfie, that's my dog here. He's been very good, hasn't he? Up to Alfie. now, he's like... Pipe up. So, 
So you were saying about it's a form of PTSD. Well, it's, it's complex PTSD, would you say, in a lot of cases? What? It's what we, we call complex PTSD. Yes, because it's, it's with a lot of unresolved grief. The, um, but the, the, tri you know, the classic is the soldier coming back from Vietnam who hears a car backfire and hits the pavement <laughs> because he thinks it's the sound of gunfire. Yeah. Well, our gunfire are intimate relationships. Yeah. So it, things go dormant while we're on it. But then we partner and parent and boom, all of that stuff that we live in us as body memories, remember? Yeah. Without the words, without the storyline, gets triggered by a same state experience. In other words, we, ex we experience the intimacy with our child or a partner that we experienced with our parent or a sibling and all the stuff we experienced around that gets warmed up and where it's unresolved pain and where we shoved it down, it comes up and boom, we're out of our mouths come everything we want to say 10 years ago, 20 years ago yeah. at the wrong person, you know, to the wrong place at the wrong time, right? So we have to wind that back in therapy and understand uh, what we're avoiding, repressing, and denying. And that's why refamilying is a golden opportunity to get triggered yeah. because we're triggered all the time. Yeah. And what we need to do with that is not repress it again, but see it as a soulful journey. Yeah. See it as our chance to heal our chance not to pass on the pain. Because if you shut it down and yell, then you don't fix it, don't understand, then you not only pass on your pain, you create new pain for the child. So they've got two generations at least to carry with them. And you're so defended, we're so defended against hearing anything about it because we don't want to hear it, we want it to be over, you know, all that stuff. Why can't they just get over it? Um, and I think your sec is that a good answer for your first That's question? Really good answer. Thank you. Yeah. That's an amazing answer. The second one question was um, time. The time. Why to does it take so long? Oh, oh, oh. Well, that's a great question because everybody wants to go to five days, or they say things like, "I did my mother work. Why am I not over it?" And I think you've got to be kidding. <laughs> yeah. This this takes for is long. This takes forever. There's no over. Yeah. There's just a continual learning and lightning, learning and lightning, learning and lightning, and you find. And why do you want it to be over anyway? Why shouldn't you uh, feel deeply and strongly? What you want to be over is your screwed up reaction to it. Yeah. You want that to be over. Yeah. You want to separate the past from the present. I use myself as an example. Um, my mother, I always had the sense with my mother who didn't particularly, I was not my mother's favorite. I was constantly speaking up and saying what I thought was wrong with the family. She couldn't stand that. I was dragging us into therapy all the time and she just wanted me to shut up. But she did feel connected to the recovery movement. So she, it was complicated. She wanted to seem like it was, uh, Oh, she was open to it, but she really, in her heart, wanted me to just be quiet, like any mother probably. But when she got, which never got dementia, but she had mild dementia, 
And she kind of let go of so much stuff. And I always thought, I think if my mother were really nice to me, I'd like to be close to her. Yes. But I never got a chance to test it out. So I always worried, maybe it's me, maybe it's me. She certainly told me it was me. But she forgot she didn't like me. And she just started to love me suddenly for the last five years of her life. Oh, how she thought I was just, she loved me, she loved my husband, she loved my kids, loved my grandchildren. We were best friends. And I got to find out, I, I thought, you know, I knew. I, I, my, my contribution to that was that I had long ago forgiven her. Yeah. And I was ready n not to throw it away twice. Yeah. I valued myself more than my mother, more than my revenge. I thought I needed this to carry into my life, this yeah. healing. Yeah. So the fact that I've wanted her, you know, of every form of like get back at her, um, it, I was really just getting back at myself not to welcome this in. And I, as I say, I'd forgiven her long ago. Forgiveness has been a big, important subject in my life. And uh, so I got to, why am I saying this? Uh, the, what the question was, what was the question? It was about time. It was about time in the oh, process. Okay. And I think, I think what you're saying and what I try and say to people too is it's a continuous becoming. It's you a know. continuous becoming. Yeah. And that relationship I had with her meant that I got to get better in my 60s. Yeah. yeah. In that part. Yes. That didn't yes. mean I wasn't thriving all the other time. Yeah. But they're, they're different. We're very complex, you know. Yeah. So to get better in every little cell of us, no, that's a lifetime journey. And then we get worse for a while and we get better. It's like getting sickness. Yeah. You know, just because you get over the flu doesn't mean you'll never yeah. have the flu. Yeah. yeah. And actually one of the, one of the trauma thrivers, actually, I said yesterday that I was interviewing you today and, you know, one of the questions for you was actually on sickness, how do we actually manage the, the physical fallout of doing the trauma work? Because as we know with the ACE study and with trauma and relational trauma, as we lessen it it doesn't mean that there isn't a cellular hold in the body that sometimes shows up in our physical wellness or physical self you know you just you tell yourself that um this is my life and i'm living it as best i can yeah and not and why not me yeah this this why me all the time Anybody who's as far as we are in life and looking at this trauma and stuff is in pretty lucky shape. Yeah. That's a I, wonderful thing to say. And yeah, I think we just yeah. have to say I'm a lucky person. I've got the luxury of self-examination. Yeah. There's no reason uh, bad things should happen to other people and not me. Yeah. And if I have some sickness, which I've had plenty of, and there, I've had several, I had Cancer when I was 35, I had endometriosis, I had... Snap. A, a form of... Huh? Snap. Cancer at 50, endometriosis. Yeah. 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 I mean, when was your are, cancer? Where was your cancer? Cervical. Okay. And I, I mean, I... Ovarian. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, and forms of that kind of abuse in my life. Yeah. So, yeah. okay. You know... That's life. Get over it. I mean, I was sick recently with something no one quite knew. It, it meant the markers for chronic fatigue. 
It could have also been a virus. It could have also been hypothyroidism. But you do your best to manage. I do. Yeah. Well, sleep as well as you can. Uh, exercise daily. Don't think you'll get better in emotionally if you eat the wrong stuff and you don't exercise. You I won't. Would. Yeah. If you smoke and you want to get better, you're still addicting yourself. If you don't exercise, you're 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 not working with your own uh, endocrine system. You know, you have to. Depression medication is just the equivalent of four brisk walks in nature, right? They yeah. have, if you Google it, there are all kinds of studies saying that, that walking is as good as the medication. Yeah. So there are many ways to go at this, but you do have to eat well, sleep well, exercise well, have healthy relationships, all that. And, and I suppose lastly, you have to go towards what's in the body. Well, you have to go towards the trauma. You know, that's oh, what we're encouraging. Stop avoiding it. Yeah. Stop avoiding it. Yeah. See, I, I, my experience with psychodrama is that if you don't avoid it and somebody you're working with a good psychodramatist, it will come towards you. On stage, boom. And yeah. then just don't avoid, don't avoid it. But then you do have to go towards, I see what you're saying. And I think, you know, I find life and people fascinating. And I find, I think you have to get curious about your own inner workings. Yeah. And get fascinated by it. Yeah. And not by your depression. Get fascinated by the healing of your depression. Yeah. Get fascinated by how to get healthy. Not just how to stay sick. Because that's fascinating too. <laughs> yeah. Thank you so much. Thank it's you. been a real honor and a real pleasure. And I know lots of people are going to get a lot from your thoughts and your wisdom and your time today. So I'm very grateful. And I can't wait to see you. Uh -huh. Thank you. You are. This is really, you're good at this. You, you do well by your people. Uh, I do a lot of podcasts and you're very good at this. Thank you. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. And I can't wait to see you in May. Yes, yeah, see you in May. Okay, thank you. Thank you. Take care.